at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, thank you so much for being here again. Welcome to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have with me Dr. Will Bynum. He is an Associate Professor in Family Medicine and Community Health at Duke University. Welcome, Will, and we're very looking forward to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Ira. Uh, I really appreciate the chance to, to participate and, and love the work you're doing. Thank you. So I usually start this conversation by going all the way back to childhood. But I'm going to do something different with you because I learned something that I didn't know about yourself, which is the, the fact that you were in the military for a number of years, like really into it. And then you move into medical education and we, you came back. I want to talk about the, the time before 2017, which was the year that you came back to kind of the civil war, civilian world, mm -hmm. world and medical education. What happened in those years in your military that prompted you to make you curious about medical education? Can you tell us a little more about that experience of being deployed and all those uh, issues that you have to deal with and how that informed your interest? Definitely. You know, my military years, um, which were seven years on active duty, <clears throat> were really among the most meaningful of my life by far. Um, I have a military background in my family. So my grandfather was a fighter pilot, um, fought in three wars. Um, my father was a, um, a colonel in the Army Reserves. I have an uncle who was in the Pentagon. Um, and, and so it, it was just a big part of my family. It was never something coming along that I had envisioned for my own identity um, until I got into medical school and, and started thinking about how to pay for it. Um, and then the two, the two merged, um, where a love of country and service and then that family legacy um, met the, pra the practicality of, of um, a scholarship for medical school. And that, um, that really pushed me into the military. Um, and during medical school, it was, it was relatively low-key, my involvement in the military. Um, and it really took off once I went into residency training. And I did my residency at um, a program called the National Capital Consortium Family Medicine Residency, and it's in the D.C. area and at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And I was really blown away within the military setting um, uh, at the quality of the education, not only that I received, but then I later got to participate in as, a, as an attending um, faculty. So I did my three years of family medicine residency at that program and then stayed on in the program as, as a faculty member um, and spent four more years in that position, which was fantastic. Um, I, I was, you know, I think surprised to find because I didn't know about the, um, the quality of medical education in the military that, that family medicine in particular uh, in the military, I think are among, you know, some of the, the best programs in the country. Um, and it's a unique experience learning medicine and serving at the same time, and then practicing teaching and serving at the same time. And I, I just found that, that um, sort of the tripartite mission really, really meaningful and fulfilling. 
Yeah. In what ways it is different? Can you give us some examples for people who are, don't really understand that kind of life? Yeah. What was, what was cool about the military is that it, it was both different and similar. So what was, what was not different about learning medicine and then teaching medicine in the military was that the medicine was the same, you know, the, um, you still had to learn all the different, uh, you know, um, clinical skills and um, the knowledge and the patient care required of your specialty. And in my case, family medicine. Um, and so many of the structures and the training opportunities, of course, the content was very similar to anything you'd find on the civilian side. What was different were the environments and the cultures and the traditions and standards um, through which this that occurred. Um, and so, you know, I was going to work in a military uniform every day. Um, I, you know, I was saluting people when I passed them on the sidewalk. Um, we, there was a greater sense of mission and purpose in addition to that around patient care um, that was really to country and to one another uh, that required an additional level of selflessness, I would say, in the midst of being quite selfless already during a rigorous training program. So, um, and then of course, the, once I was a, in a faculty role, there was the, the, the ever-present knowledge of the potential to be deployed. Uh, and, then, and then also the amazing other opportunities that came along with being in the military, uh, such as I got to travel with Congress around the world as a, as a doctor. Um, I got to you know, spend time in global settings and um, Latin America, uh, Central America, and, and then a deployment to East Africa. So, so those experiences were particularly meaningful in addition to all the great educational experiences I had. If you were to pick one of those experiences extremely memorable that really forced your identity as a physician and military, what would that be? Definitely my deployment. Um, and the deployment was, was such a catalyst for me in so many ways, um, a growth catalyst. I, it was, it was a position um, that was in support of a special operations command in East Africa. And I was the senior medical director of that command. So it was a lot of responsibility and it was responsibility at a level that I had not experienced before. And in a setting that I was very unfamiliar with. So operational tactical military, um, you know, operations were not something that I had a lot of experience in. Um, having been in academics my whole, my whole career and not, not having been a real, um, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a guy that shoots guns and um, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty tight B when it comes to some of the more hardcore aspects of the military. And so there was a huge indoctrination and learning curve um, into those aspects that at an, at an intrapersonal level for me, took me out of my comfort zone and really instilled a new level of self-efficacy to overcome, you know, my own imposter syndrome, my own you know, feelings of inadequacy, questions about whether I'd be good enough, failures as I went through this process um, that has given me a lot more confidence, I think, to take on new tasks, responsibilities, and roles. Uh, and so that, in that way, it was such a great growth experience for me. And then not to mention the unbelievable experience of getting to be a part of a group of people at a very forward deployed place in the world that's dangerous and that has incredibly complex logistics. Um, just getting to be in that group 
and around so many capable, selfless um, warriors, really. I mean, these people are just phenomenal. It was so cool for me. So it gave me immense respect for what the members of our military do, what they sacrifice, um, and, and then also what our military is capable of. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. Part of that is because my research now is looking into military settings too, which I found the same as you, extremely inspiring. And you have used the word selfness a few times in your answers. And I was wondering um, how does, how is it driving your, your education and research interests? Because then you focus on exploring certain emotions that you're calling self-conscious emotions. So what's the link there from that reflection that you did to selfness to self-conscious emotions? When I was deployed, I was in a role um, called, I was in what was called an enabler role. So as an enabler, um, it was, you know, I was one of many enablers. There were medical folks, there were logistics folks, legal, um, spiritual, uh, transportation, et cetera. And every, the, the enablers' jobs were to execute the mission or to help execute the mission. And the mission was to put these, you know, sometimes 25 people out into a dangerous area in as safe a way as possible. And all the people around them, all of the enablers around them um, served in support of that mission. Mm -hmm. And what I really loved about the notion of being an enabler is that it was never about me. Um, it was never about the work I was doing um, except uh, in its um, in service of the mission, and and that's how I've sort of come to understand my role as an educator. You know, it's it's about enabling the people around me. It's a, it's about enabling the greater mission of the much greater mission of of addressing um, threats to health, to to healthcare inequities, social injustice in the world, particularly through the lens in, in my case of primary care. And, and how can I be, you know, the best enabler of that mission through training residents and students that will be effective um, stakeholders in that mission uh, and, and can contribute to it meaningfully. So in, in many ways, um, I've always been a, a fan of servant leadership and that being sort of the, the desire and willingness to lead on behalf of others, not, not for yourself or any other gain. And while there is incredible gain that comes along personally, being a, an educator, uh, being an enabler in the military, uh, it's all about other people. And so that's really helped um, sort of shape my philosophy when it comes to teaching. And then from an emotional standpoint, you know, I study emotions like shame and guilt and pride. Um, my time in the military, and especially when I was deployed, was, was just an incredible time of emotional engagement really for me. And at times, emotional struggle. You know, I, I had been in a, a role as an attending faculty, uh, having come out of training where I was pretty comfortable. I knew myself, my identity was starting to really solidify. And I wasn't put out of my comfort zone very often. And then I was just ejected out of that pr pretty prolifically and in, in, into this role where I was very uncertain about myself, experienced, you know, and, you know, um, self doubt and, and shame at times related to you know, a struggle to perform at the level I wanted to and, and really learned a lot about how to engage with those feelings 
that have helped shape me now in my emotional responses and also helped me understand a little bit about how others might be experiencing them. Yeah. How did you see, it's fascinating and thank you for sharing that with us. How do you see your trainees when they interact with you growing into that emotional reflection as well? Yeah, it's, you know, um, it's a great question. Uh, it's, it depends on how you look at it. So if you were to look at it across a few different time points, let's say you, every year you'd step back and said, how, how are the people that I have the privilege to train and teach growing mm -hmm. and, and not just emotionally, but also growing in their knowledge, their confidence, their skills. And if you, if, if, and when you do that, you see this unbelievable leaps that people take is incredible. It's so cool. And, and now coming to the end of the academic year, especially for our first year residents, you're just in awe of how much they have grown over the course of what has been a really hard nine or 10 months. Um, and, and there's emotional growth, I think that occurs as well. Um, now, if you look at it day to day, what you find is a grind. It's, mm -hmm. it's a grind and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a back alley brawl in a lot of ways. Um, it's sort of the, the terms we, we've come across in the psychology literature and the workplace learning literature um, to differentiate what I'm saying are, you know, professional identity formation is sort of watching that, that process grow over time. Um, identity work though, is, is like the effort, the energy, the, the, the duking it out mm. that occurs to, to fuel that identity formation. And that, that's a lot messier. Um, so when I look at how our trainees grow, students grow, even, I mean, us as faculty, how we grow over time, what we don't often see are, are the really hard days. They're the failures or the, the burnout that we feel, the shame we feel, um, and the engagement th with those emotions that ultimately drives that growth, um, but isn't so pretty and isn't so neat. Right. Yeah. You, you just mentioned that it's not only influencing your trainees, but also your colleagues. And actually, one of the questions that I had prepared was exactly that. Like, how has what you have learned in your research about these self-conscious emotions, particularly shame, inform or influence your interactions with your colleagues more than your trainees? Because that's something that we don't really talk about much. What's your experience? That's an excellent question. I think, well, um, it, one way that I view it is that if, if you're human and you have a heartbeat, then you're, you're capable and probably are experiencing emotions like shame and pride and guilt. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about targeting one particular population in terms of how we engage with these emotions, but, but really recognizing that we're all humans. Mm -hmm. We're all equally susceptible, at least to the currents of these emotions and, and are probably equally experiencing them in ways. So, so uh, there's relevance at, among all relationships at all levels. And, uh, and I, that's been really powerful because it's not just colleagues and trainees and my supervisors, it's my family and my wife and my friends. I mean, um, being able to um, think about and identify when someone that you care about, it might be experiencing emotional distress, especially something really challenging like shame presents an incredible opportunity to, to bond with them and 
and to support them and to be supported by them. So I, I see these emotions as hard as they are to acknowledge and talk about as is real catalyst for connection. And, uh, and so I've, I've really just loved connecting with people through those shared experiences so with colleagues. I mean, um, I, I don't think we talk about these emotions as much at, at an attending level or a, a practitioner level, because I think there's some sort of unspoken, you know, assumption that once you get out of training, these things just go away. You know, you stop making mistakes or you stop feeling insecure or inadequate. And in reality, I mean, from my own experiences, I often feel more insecure as, a, as an attending um, or a program director to whom all these people are looking up and have expectations of that I don't think I can deliver a lot of the time. So I, I think um, we need to open up conversations about these emotional experiences more, mm -hmm. especially the, the higher levels of hierarchies, because I think we need to overcome the stoicism that often stifles it. Right. Did you notice a difference in those interactions from you, your time when you were in the military, deployed environments, and everybody knowing about those emotions, going through them, and now where you are in the civilian world, people who haven't been there? What has you know? What have you noticed different, or or is this the same? Yeah. Gosh, good question. It, it, you know, being in a military, a deployed military environment was really interesting because it had, and not only the deployment itself, but some of the pre-deployment training I did. So I did some combat skills um, training, weapons training, um, high stakes level training that similar to being in a medical learning environment, um, there were a lot of learning curves. There was a lot of posturing. Um, there was a need to project confidence and, and some of that emotional stoicism so there was a lot of overlap there. What, what was different? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there was a greater awareness of th things like shame. I, that I think also was, you know, there are barriers to that in the military and they, they may even be greater because there is such a high value placed on the need to be, to project strength and, and for, for good reason. I mean, it can be a life or death thing um, in, in certain environments. And, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, I also found the military to be very open um, about the ways in which people struggle and, and maybe advanced in ways, particularly around things like PTSD, um, trauma, et cetera. But, but it wasn't as, as advanced as I would have hoped. So I, I, I see opportunity everywhere to, to bring about greater awareness of these emotions. What I did find, though, was the and this is this was fascinating to me and sort of shocking. Um, the the learning environments in the military. So I just use my combat skills training as an example. Were far more conducive to risk taking, to engaged learning. They were more psychologically safe. They were um, they were more supportive than many environments I've experienced in healthcare. And I did some a trauma refresher course during my pre-deployment training and encountered a very toxic environment that felt way less safe than the combat skills training environment I experienced in the military. And I think that's a very, that's a very interesting dichotomy and juxtaposition because, you know, the military is sort of classically known as a eat your young sort of get yelled at um, fall in line type of environment. And where, while there's some of that is there, right. There, there are, 
standards and um, hierarchies and chains of command that have to be honored. Underlying that was a far safer, more comfortable learning environment for engaging with interpersonal risk. Wow, that's really interesting for sure. But thanks for sharing that as well. So you have been doing your research on shame, out of the three emotions, shame has been your focus thus far as I understand. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you also have been in, medic in this community not for too long, right? Um, but you have gained a lot of visibility because of your research on shame. So I'm curious to know what are the benefits and also the downsides of doing research on a topic that gives you so much visibility as a person? Uh, um, yeah, so the, the, the really fascinating thing about studying shame, um, the overwhelming thing about it and the really inspiring thing about it is that it gives you an, an inner look into a dimension of the experience of learning medicine, of struggling to learn medicine, of struggling to practice medicine that you know many people don't get to see. Um, and, and so there's a real almost sanctity of that where um, it's, it's a real privilege, but you feel like you're in a very, um, you're in a really special space when you're talking with someone about their shame. And, um, and that there's a weight that comes with that. The, the way that I process that, I think, is um, I, actually, I actually just see it as being in a very human space. And, um, and, and so we, we have researched shame qualitatively thus far, which I think is, is, is the more revealing and powerful way to research it than to do it at a greater distance through instruments or numbers, et cetera. And so these interviews that I, I do with people often go to incredibly deep personal places um, around failure and struggle and trauma and abuse and, and who we are as people and our upbringing and our race and our gender identity and, and things that things are revealed in these interviews that are not easily revealed. And for some people ever revealed. And that's, that's powerful to sit in that space with someone what I, the way I navigate that is that I, I bring myself to it as well. You know, it's, it's an inner, it's a research interview. I'm trying to learn about their experiences, but our methodology calls for us to bring our own experiences into data collection and analysis. And that that's hermeneutic phenomenology. And so I, I try to join our participants in with their vulnerability. I try to meet them there. Um, and, and what results is, is a really special space, but one where we both are invested emotionally. And, and I think that actually facilitates a more open discussion about these emotions. So the visibility that comes from that, what's, what's learned and gained from that level of, of insight into a person's emotions, um, it, it just, it confers a lot of power and influence to advance our understanding of these emotions. I mean, and, and that's, that's our goal. I mean, that's the goal of this research, uh, it's almost like kind of servant research. The goal is to take what we're learning and, and try to make learning in medicine, practicing medicine, being in medicine better for all of us who are there. And 
and, and all the credit to the participants that are, that are courageous and willing to speak up and share these stories. Well, I have to say that I really appreciate your sharing these stories because now it becomes, at least to me, very clear why you're doing this kind of research, what drives you, but also why you are the person, like one of the appropriate people to do it through your experiences. And I think it's a good message for our listeners when you go and do this kind of research, bringing yourself into it makes it even more powerful. So thank you for that, Will. I'm going to switch a little bit into a little less formal questions or more fun, let's call it that way, even though we'll stay in the same topic. I usually draw a random question from a set of questions that I have, but again, I'm going to do it different with you. I had a chat with Lara Barpio, which I know is uh, one of your close collaborators. And I just ask her, if you were to interview Will for the Curiosity Hobby, what would be one question you would ask him? And here's her question. She wanted to know, uh, you study chain, but she wanted to ask you about the opposite emotion, which is acclaim or honor. What is the best compliment or the most personally relevant acclaim that you have ever had? Wow. Gosh, that is a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it for a minute. Yeah, take your time. You know, I think this answer is, is different now than it might've been a few years ago. Um, I mean, by far and away, by far right now, the best, the best possible acclaim I can receive is anything that signals to me that I'm a, um, I'm a good father or a good husband by far. Um, and, and I don't know what I mean by good. I use that word, word in, in, in space of something else, but that I'm, that I'm living up to my ideals in terms of the way that I want, how I want to show up for my kids and my wife, my family. Um, same as, as, as a program director. I mean, I think um, being anything that suggests to me that, that I'm living, you know, my ideal as, as someone who cares for others and advocates for others and, and wants to make their experience better, that, that would be the best acclaim. Um, I'll say it feels great to be, to, to receive other honors. I mean, you know, to, to know that your, your research is making an impact or, um, you know, to know that you made a difference for a, men, a mentee, things like that. But, um, you know, my father, my father is just an amazing guy. He is one of the most accomplished people I know. I mean, he's always excelled at the things he's done. He's a great basketball player in college. He's a remarkably successful self-made engineer. He is, he is known by everyone around him as one of the most selfless, humble, and reliable people you'll ever meet. And one of the things I admire most about him is that he never seeks recognition for it ever. I've, I've had to learn all about the ways my dad is, is a total stud and an amazing guy from other people. Um, and I think that I've just always loved that way of living your life. You know, that a claim feels good. Don't get me wrong. And it feels good to be honored. Um, but it feels a lot better to be, I think, validated in terms of the way that you, the relationships you keep with people and, and the, the, the ways you 
hope to show up for them in their lives. Very well said. That's so nice. Um, again, a very informal question. And I know now that your dad is one of your heroes and the people that you admire the most. But let's pick someone else. If you had the chance to be an assistant for someone you admire for one day, anyone in the world, who would you pick? Hmm. It could be people you don't know, <laughs> celebrities, whatever. I mean, I got, I, yeah, it's, there's a couple of people jumping in my head. I'm just saying what comes first. I mean, Barack Obama, for sure. I think I, I just want to understand how his brain works. I want to understand. I just want to live a day in his life. I want to see what his relationships are like, how he is as a father, how he views the world. Um, I have so much respect for him as a person and everything he's done in the world you know, irrespective of politics, I just as a human being. So he, he's, he is a clear one for me. Um, I'm also a big soccer fan. And the, there was a big soccer game a couple of days ago where a team Manchester city lost um, to Real Madrid in a stunning fashion. I mean, they, they blew it. They, it was incredible how they lost in the very, very last minutes of this game. And I've always admired their coach. And, and I would love to be, to sit in his body for a, a day right now and understand is is a is a coach to such a talented team how do you recover from right. from that um so th yeah there's just so many people in the world that are so interesting and seem to have things figured out i would love to just ride their coattails for a day it's so so fun that those two well the first one it would be my pick too one thing that i learned about obama i love how his public speaking skills and i i yeah. learned that he used to go to a hotel and lock down himself in a hotel to get his scripts done. And I would like to be an assistant just to see how he writes scripts. That's a minor thing, but I thought it was fascinating. But I'm with you. That guy is blows my mind away for everything. And soccer, my parents were telling me about that game, actually, a few days ago. <laughs> so it's, it's intriguing to understand how people manage to overcome what in the face outside looks like a tremendous weight in your in your back so thanks my couple more questions one is in terms of your work now what are you working on and what's your next curiosity you, you have been focused on on chain are you going to start moving into other emotions or are you continuing the chain research well maybe some of both i mean i think what what shame has been what's been interesting about studying this emotion is it's it's like um it's like an octopus with all these tentacles that that go in into places you didn't expect. Makes sense once you understand that. But but uh, I'd love to just ride some of those tentacles out um, to those areas. One is around identity formation. I mean, and just identity. I've become really interested in how we form and reform our self concepts um, as people in healthcare. Uh, I love the psychology of self-esteem and, and what, what forms our self-esteem, which has a very natural relationship with shame. Um, and so it's, it's just a, you know, a sister topic, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in 
the notion of educational trauma. So this has come up in our research. Um, and these are you know, essentially tra traumatic experiences that are occurring as a part of and during learning. Um, and I think there's real, there's a real untapped, um, you know, that's an untapped area for understanding and for advancing, um, you know, progress in terms of the environments we create and how we provide the level of support that people need. Um, yeah, I am as, as much of, I, as much of a constructivist as I am. Um, I'll, I'll borrow a term from Lara who's just, she's just a mentor and a friend and a rock star. Talk about an idol. Um, you know, she talks about uh, epistemological promiscuity, I think. And, and so I, I'm working with some folks, you know, putting my, my toes in the post-positivist water and we're developing a, a scale that measures it's kind of exposure to shame or shame frequency over a period of time that, that we're beginning to validate. And so exploring some of this topic quantitatively, I think will be really interesting and, and maybe yield some additional knowledge. Um, so yeah. And gosh, there's just so, there's so many things to explore and study with this topic and others. Um, a lot of it too is, I want to learn more about how to be an effective mentor and research and um, how to help advance people's skills and careers the same way so many people have done for me. So that, that would also be sort of a next, a next level goal. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And we look forward to hear about your post-positive, post post-positive, you said? Yeah. Uh, experiences <laughs> and see what that takes you. Wish me luck. You know, my, my brain, my brain struggles with it, but you know, I've got... you saw my face when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Right. My final question, which is usually the same or similar to everybody. And, and it's just a curiosity that I have for any person is if you were to choose to become someone you didn't become so far that you really, really want to become, uh, and you had a month to do that or do whatever you wanted. What would you choose? And you're not allowed to do a, be a physician or be in the military or any of your identities thus far. What, what would you pick to do during that month or become? It would definitely be something creative. Um, I'll tell you what. So I'm just going to list some things that come to mind and maybe I'll put it all together. Um, a musician of some sort. I grew up playing the violin and had some amazing experiences in orchestras uh, and in groups along the way. Um, a writer, I think a, a, a writer might be maybe, maybe the, the number one, I don't know exactly what I would write, um, <laughs> but just to, to be a professional writer, sounds amazing. Um, graphic designer. Oh. I mean, an illustrator I, I, I've begun one of the things I love about this work of shame is that it's so multidimensional that it, I think in order to really effectively communicate its meaning and its, and its nature, you need more than written words. And so I've had the privilege of working with some incredibly creative people who are, who are illustrators or documentary filmmakers, um, writers to help communicate this topic. And I'm in awe of what they do. I mean, um, a couple of illustrators in particular just do stunning work photographer that's what it, that's what it would be i'd be a professional yeah. photographer yeah i I've, i'm into photography and i've always enjoyed it i've always been a total amateur but i would be a professional photographer actually that's what i would do okay perfect 
perfect. What's about photography? What do you find with that? Um, so I compos the composition piece. Okay. So there's, you know, um, being able to curate an image and a perspective um, and, and give it depth in, in a, in a still manner. Right. So taking a dynamic yeah. um, scene or environment and creating an, uh, and creating art through a particular perspective, through sort of manipulation of the camera, mm -hmm. through an editorial focus. Um, and then also that the, just the act of going out in the world and finding photographs. Um, I went through a, a phase when I was really into photography where I love street art. And so I would, I would go when I would travel for various reasons, I would always try to go find some of the more, you know, famous or interesting street art in, in those communities. And it was like a scavenger hunt and it would take me to parts of, of cities and communities that I never would have gone otherwise. Um, and and that was that was so fun it was it was the picture was one thing or the photograph and i was really just photographing other people's art <laughs> so you know it, but it was more the process and the journey that was very exciting um so yeah photography is just a uh it's such a great creative medium that helps us see the world in different ways and and the people in it in different ways and then also the post-processing the editing and um all the all the fun things you can do there Cool. Wow. That's a great answer. Thank you very much. Well, Will, this is it. Appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. It was really interesting to learn about your stories. I appreciate also the, in, how insightful you were and thoughtful in sharing all those with us. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, Ira. Thanks for having me. And everyone, uh, thank you for being here and we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.